Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the fear factor that's driving government acquisition and how to deal with it. I hear the fearful amongst our profession uh, talk about not wanting to get dinged. And I would ask this, what is a ding? And how much does it hurt? Don't worry about getting dinged. The pressure on CIOs that shouldn't be there. They're getting so much direction about go work on this, go work on this, go work on this, that I'm concerned they're in compliance mode. And refuting the number one concern about automation tools. If you institute these AI tools, you're, are you trying to automate my job out there? Are you trying to automate my job and like, therefore I don't have work? Do I not? You know, do I no longer have purpose? Is that what you're trying to do to me? I said, no, 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 no. It's Thursday, March 31st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The General Services Administration will take down the SAM.gov site this weekend for the transition to new identifying numbers. GSA will replace DUNS numbers with its own UEIs, Unique Entity Identifiers. The DUNS numbers were proprietary to Dun and Bradstreet. The UEIs are automatically generated. GSA's Technology Transformation Service and Kessel Run at the Air Force are teaming up on a new cloud offering. The platform can handle 100 million users an hour through cloud.gov. The acting director of cloud.gov, Lindsay Young, says the service will be open to any agency. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Decision makers from the Navy, the Jake Office at DOD, the State Department, and more agencies are coming to the Government Forum 2022. It'll be at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City, April 19th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new Polaris contract from the General Services Administration already has a protest. It's the latest sign of trouble for a big procurement vehicle. Michael Wooten is vice president for strategic direction at the National Industries for the Blind. He's former administrator of federal procurement policy. Mike, welcome. It's great to see you again. Last time we talked, I was on the TV show. You were at OFPP, and you talked to me about frictionless acquisition, a concept that you pushed as the administrator of federal procurement policy. I don't know a lot about acquisition, but it strikes me that all of these problems are not frictionless acquisition. Where are we going wrong in some of these issues compared to what you were trying to do at OFPP? Welcome, Mike. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Francis. Good to connect again. Um, The challenge with some of these uh, larger acquisition programs is that, uh, one, I don't know that we bring in the acquisition professionals early enough in the planning. Uh, another thing is that we have to take the time to bring uh, or to lay out a good acquisition plan. I think to, in today's world, that acquisition plan must look at all the wickets that you must run, whether it's small business set-asides, um, other set-asides, the Buy American considerations, um, uh, making sure that you're in compliance with some of the latest legislation, such as uh, the 889 requirements, um, but but the one thing that 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 seems to be a common challenge is that people want to speed up the acquisition process and they don't know the right levers to get that speed. I'll, I'll borrow something from the special forces uh, community. At least this is a this may be an urban legend, but this is attributed to them, and that is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. 
I'm going to say it again because it's so important. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Take the time to do the proper acquisition planning. Engage a, a forward-leaning member of the acquisition community and take the time to get things ironed out right and to make sure you've considered all the wickets. And that, while that's slow, it's smooth. And again, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. What are those uh, right levers to pull uh, that you alluded to a moment ago, Mike? Well, so, some of the some of the levers uh, in, in involve well, there are things that you'll uncover when you do the acquisition planning. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, the with the larger acquisition uh, with the larger acquisitions, I should say, you know that you have a fairly small uh, pool of, of bidders. And oftentimes there, the meat of, of that acquisition planning is going to be in engaging partners or small businesses in the small business plan, uh, so forth. Also, you have an idea of what the history is of the competitors in a, in a fairly small pool. Uh, what you're likely to deal with, where the likely protest is. And sometimes it is unavoidable. Uh, you And therefore, you have to plan it. I remember uh, being outside the federal government, working for uh, the District of Columbia, and I forgot, what I've forgotten now, what the acquisition requirement was. But I can tell you this, uh, across the nation, with all the 50 states, including the District of Columbia, there were two contractors who could bid on this work. And every time there would be a protest. You have to bake that into the process at that point. You know that's going to happen. Sometimes protests are unavoidable. You just have to be able to be aware of it, plan for it, um, and, and, and not try to, and, and not make the clumsy mistakes that either invite protests or uh, invite a victory uh, from, from the uh, private sector on your protest, because sometimes people have a right to protest. But if you do it right, you're going to prevail. But if you're sloppy, if you don't take heed to that slow and smooth and smooth is fast, then you will invite victory. Um, and then you're, you have a huge setback. You have to start from, from scratch. And, and then your acquisition is tainted. You referenced the search a moment ago for forward-leaning people, finding forward-leaning people to help. What characteristics or traits do those forward-leaning people have that people should be on the lookout for? Well, forward-leaning people, usually people know who they are. Um, when I was young in procurement, I used to characterize um, contracts professionals. Uh, in, in, in my narrow view, I contracted them as either cowboys or strict constructions. And I can tell you, that the program offices always want the cowboys. They'll kick in the door. They'll get that contract out. Uh, but they aren't—they aren't as mature as you need for the large acquisition program. Because again, slow is smooth and smooth is fast, and the cowboy is going to cause you all kinds of problems. I was a cowboy, by the way. Uh, funny thing is, later on, I was administrator for federal procurement policy. But you—you you want someone who is cowboy-like in that they're willing to partner with you, that they, uh, they embrace your mission as part of their mission. I, I think that's the key 
part of getting that forward-leaning acquisition person. They see uh, their mission as mission support, not strictly compliance. And that's what I would say was the characteristic I had in mind when I talked about the strict constructions. They were complying. They thought their job was a good contract, that white piece of paper and all the words in between the four corners of the contract. But the mature contract professional understands to partner, understands that the contract is actually bigger than the four corners of the contract, that it is a it is the deal that the federal government must enter into that complies with law. Um, and, and they're also not afraid uh, of, of trying new things, and they're not going to reflexively say no because they know that's the safe answer. And, and, and generally, uh, that person has some level of experience. But I'll take, an, I'll take an inexperienced person who wants to partner who's forward-leaning um, and, and who will take responsibility for the decisions over a person who's experienced and... Um, and, and, and basically whittles down your deal so that you're not really asking for what you wanted to at the, at the uh, outset of your contract. How are we doing at growing the people that we need to perpetuate this kind of forward-leaning momentum, Mike? Um, it depends. There are pockets. I'm going to call somebody's name out. Uh, she's since retired from the uh, federal government, and she's not the only person, but she, she's uh, presently on my mind, and that's uh, Soraya Korea. Uh, at, at uh, she was formerly at uh, uh, Homeland Security, mm-hmm. and she was the chief procurement officer there. Um, the way you perpetuate that is, as she would say, always have your people's back. They're going to make mistakes, and when they make mistakes, you learn from it. You don't call them out. Uh, I never heard her use the word "ding" before. Someone, uh, someone got dinged, or we got dinged. I never heard her use that word. I hear the fearful amongst our profession uh, talk about not wanting to get dinged. And I would ask this, what is a ding? And how much does it hurt? Don't worry about getting dinged. Um, Do the job, consider the mission, support the efforts to to achieve the mission, Um, but you you do have that responsibility to balance the three charges, mission support, managing the public trust of taxpayers' funds, and honoring the other special considerations in the acquisition regulations to set aside to promote um, the, the full benefit of the use of, of funds from the public coffer. So that, that's the set aside piece of, of the mission. Those, those are the things that we want to make sure we get right. Michael Wooten, great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for coming on the program today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. You can read more about some of the troubles with contracts in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. CyberScoop's Zero Trust Summit features public and private sector leaders talking about solutions for federal agencies that are implementing zero trust technology and strategy. The Zero Trust Summit's happening next Wednesday, April 6th at the Conrad in Washington, D.C. I'll be there for the entire event. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com.
The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency will get half a billion dollars more next fiscal year than it did this year if Congress approves the White House's budget request for fiscal 2023. Individual agencies are asking for more money for cyber, too. Grant Schneider is Senior Director of Cybersecurity Services at Venable. He's former Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Grant, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What did you see in the budget request regarding cyber that you really like? Welcome. Yeah, Francis. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, uh, great to great to be here with you again. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, the increases for cyber. I mean, really a, a positive to see that you know the the Biden administration's asking for more money. They've directly tied it to the executive order one four zero two eight from last year, which had a lot of mandates for agencies. And of course, executive orders don't come with more money. So, you know, agencies are kind of just now getting a shot at getting some additional money to go implement. So I think the increases across the board were great. Increases for CISA are good. Uh, you know, I would like to see bigger increases at the agency level because uh, I think that's where the rubber meets the road, but uh, still a good start. Where are the agencies lacking or what are the agencies lacking money-wise to be able to accomplish both the letter and spirit of the cyber executive order and, and other items, Grant? Yeah, when you look at most of the agency budgets, I mean, most of them went up um, in the request by, but it's more in the five, seven, eight percent, you know, a few, a little bit more um, significant increase to CISO, which is great. Uh, what, what I am really going to be interested in seeing how they implement is what is the split between, you know, funding that CISA is going to be able to provide for, you know, shared services or community programs that are going to benefit agencies um, versus what are agencies going to have to pay for out of hide to move towards zero trust architecture um, and to implement some of the software security requirements that are going to be coming. I think all of those could come with significant price tags. Uh, and I don't think the agency, many of the agencies, frankly, were behind already. Uh, and I don't think that they have enough money to implement those on their own. What are some of the specific pieces, the specific applications grant that agencies need money for to comply with the cyber executive order, as opposed to just changing policy or changing governance that might not require a lot of money or any money at all? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple. I think there's agencies need to make investments in supply chain risk management. Um, that's going to have some technology, but it's also going to have just some, you know, needing a program office or an office that's actually, you know, having full understanding of what's in the environment, what's coming into the environment and what that looks like. I think software security is similar. That's kind of part of supply chain falls in there. I also think around identity, you know, the, the push in the executive order to, you know, mandate, you know, non-fishable or phishing resistant MFA across the board. For a lot of agencies, that's going to mean some new infrastructure where their current, you know, PIV infrastructure doesn't work. And that's going to be something that they're going to need uh, to invest in. And of course, that's a key element for all of their zero trust work. I'm thinking about this next question from a reality perspective rather than a budget cycle perspective. How much of that stuff, given the threat landscape today and where the threat landscape may evolve in the next couple of years, is really urgent? And how much of it can uh, an agency put on a timeline and say, well, we can build toward this at some point? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and of course, you know, everyone's answer is going to be everything is really urgent. Um, I, I personally think that 
despite the fact everything is urgent, completing, and I'll put that a little bit in, in air quotes, if you will, but getting tasks done is is more urgent. And so I would highly encourage agencies to make a priority list, figure out based on their risk management program, what's most critical to get done first, and then go get that done, then start on the next item on the list. Having a whole bunch of half done um, initiatives generally doesn't enhance security very much. And I'd rather them see complete some, see them complete actions or, or get them, you know, mostly done to where they're getting the security benefits. What's your sense of how agencies are doing at doing that, Grant? Um, candidly, I think they're struggling because they're getting so much direction from OMB, from CISA, who's now going to be bigger to give them even more direction potentially, but they're getting so much direction about go work on this, go work on this, go work on this, that I'm concerned they're in compliance mode and kind of trying to do enough to get you know, that off their backs, as opposed to being able to just hunker down and, and again, implement their risk management program. That's only been the case when it comes to cybersecurity and, and, and network security in the government. Since there's been a network in the government, you know, I, people were talking about FISMA compliance challenges 15 years ago when I came into this space and it wasn't new then. What gets us out of that mode, Grant? What gets us to a point where agencies are doing the tasks that they need to do in order to keep their network secure rather than trying to get sign-offs? Wow, I I think that's the you know sixty-four million dollar yeah. <laughs> or maybe sixty-four billion dollar question for for agencies. I I, I think it's really uh, the start is leadership buy-in across the board and getting all your stakeholders inside of the agency to understand what is it you're able to go do now? What are you going to put off? What are the risks associated with that? Um, or the investment that you need in order to, to do two things at once or multiple things, more things at the same time, but really then being able to stick to the plan and, and have the plan stick to the plan and have leadership that's going to be understanding and say, I get it. I know where you're at in the journey um, and be able to give you the top cover. We've been talking for a long time about the White House's executive order that's supposed to be coming about clarifying what's in all the boxes, what belongs to CISA, what belongs to your former job and your former office, what belongs to the office of the national cyber director and so on. Is that maybe the next piece that will help to clarify some of that ah, confusion is too strong a word, I think, but some of the questions that people have about what belongs where? I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at hopeful. And, and, you know, again, having been one of the people driving agencies in particular directions, I'm hopeful that that's going to add clarity. And I think it will add clarity. Um, I, I don't think it's going to add the level of clarity that members of Congress and others are looking for because there just aren't these hard lanes in the road with cyber. And I think you're going to continue to see rightfully, you know, overlap and collaboration between OMB and the National uh, Cyber Director and with CISA as well. And, you know, I, I personally would like to see the oversight coming from the executive office of the president uh, and the support and help and implementation coming from CISA and kind of have that be the divide, you know, keep CISA out of the policy 
space, let them go drive the implementation with agencies. Uh, but definitely looking forward to, to that EO whenever it comes out, because I, I think it will help agencies, um, but it's not going to alleviate a lot of their challenges, um, I don't think. All right. Um, back to the budget request, the original intent. Did you see anything in the budget request that surprised you or did you not see something that you thought would be there, Grant? Um, I was a little surprised at the the 300 million for, the, well, I, I would have liked to see a bigger technology modernization fund. I guess I'll put it that way. I wasn't surprised at the number. I would have liked to have seen, seen it bigger. Uh, I, I think that that is still a great opportunity for the government and for agencies to be able to, to get stuff done. I understand that, you know, it cuts against what op- uh, appropriators and, and kind of even some of the budget people at OMB, how they like to, to manage the money. But I do think it's an important asset for agencies and an, and an important program, um, you know, as long as it's running smoothly. Is there a right number or is the right number just more than that? Because, you know, we're talking about the, the, the 23 budget, um, I understand that, you know, we want to see how the billion dollars really gets rolled out, how efficiently that gets used, how effectively it is. And, and in a perfect world, maybe you would take a pause right now and see how that goes. Um, but I, I feel like we, we need to force that to work well and put more money in it so that we're not having that program office and, and the board kind of working with $200 million here and then trying to deal with a billion dollars and then going back to working with 300 million. Like, I think they're going to struggle to get into their rhythm if the, the amount of money they're dealing with continues to shift drastically. Grant Schneider, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Francis, thanks for having me. You can read more about the cyber details in the budget proposal in today's show notes, the daily scoop podcast. IT leaders from CISA and HHS headline the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference happening May 19th. It's at the International Spy Museum in downtown D.C. You can find a link to learn more about it in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Commerce Department and the agency's components are pushing their cloud migration journeys hard. Nagesh Rao is Chief Information Officer at the Bureau of Industry and Safety at Commerce. He tells me three big reasons the cloud has helped his agency. Ease of use, accessibility for data, and the fact that uh, you can set it up so it stays on. So even if there's a massive drive of traffic to those platforms, it can stay on and turn on servers in real time right off right off about one after one. You know, the situation I had to deal with at SBA really helped us out there. So that same methodology that Maria wrote and myself and, and the team did over there, same, same kind of practice I'm doing at BIS. I want stuff to just stay stable, operate. If there's an outage, it's intermittent or really brief because, you know, servers turn on. So it's it's been fantastic, to be honest with you. And um you know, when I arrived, like, for example, our emails were going out every other day. Emails were going off, servers were breaking down, the PIV card certs weren't working. Like, it was it was, it was, was a nightmare. And, and it was just because a lot of people were in the bureau were teleworking and using VPN and whatnot. And, and again, our bureau was not designed to do telework and whatnot. So adopting to the cloud allowed that flexibility to keep systems on and ongoing and, and be able to do maintenance pretty quickly. What were the big problems that you had to solve when you started to build a transition strategy, Nagish? What what did you need to fix 
And how did the cloud, how does this process that you're undertaking help you fix those problems? I think the first major issue we had to address was uh, the fear factor. Hmm. A lot of people were fearful of it. We're talking about a staff that um, smart and, and, and hungry, but at the same time had no um, real understanding of what, the what, what it meant to go to the cloud because they were, they were used to just on-premise hard systems that they would touch and work with. You know, I think there was a lot of fear factor of like, will this do away with my job? And, 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 and what does this mean? Like, I, I don't understand cloud engineering. I don't understand this and that. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm used to what I know, physical pen, paper, you know, don't, don't give me another new tool I have to learn. Um, I think that was the first primary issue and uh, just easing folks through the process walking them through the, 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 the journey and then, and then bringing experts who have gone through it from on-premise to cloud migration really helped them understand their, they felt, they felt like they were no one, they were no longer alone in the journey. And then two, um, knowing that other people had successfully done it and seeing the best practices helped them be able to pivot and get through it a lot faster. Now that you're on the other side of it, what do you see and what do your colleagues, the kind of folks you just described see as far as how you're able to deliver those services, deliver that the, the stuff better for people? Oh man, you're, you're seeing, that's a great question. You're seeing quick response times, right? So when, when they, automatic notifications, um, you know, when we're seeing funkiness, we have a lot better visibility as to what's going on with our systems and traffic and applications data. You know, I think a critical thing too, again, is the ability to swap data pretty quickly, especially working in the cloud, uh, you know, with SaaS solutions in general, you know, software as a service solutions, you, you, you have a common interface that you can work with and, and the staff, the BIS staff now have something that's reliable, something that they can utilize and simple things such as like a OneDrive application, they're like, wait, I can share a document and edit it in real time with multiple people looking at the document at the same time. You can, you can do that. Like, and that was the funny thing. I think when Google, for example, released Google Docs to allow that, you know, uh, there were folks who knew about it, but there were a lot of folks who didn't. And so I think it was smart when Microsoft and other uh, vendors out there were designing that same kind of like real-time editing, real-time connectivity, real-time. You don't have to lock the document and then wait till the next person checks it out, that kind of thing. Like you can all do the work simultaneously real-time and see real-time edits and see changes happening. They're like, whoa, <laughs> blow my mind away. <laughs> the mobility, I got to tell you, the awesomest thing, as you know, I, I'm, I'm the father to an awesome nine-month-old baby boy who's like super clever, clever and super figuring things out really fast. And the apple didn't fall, fall far from the tree when it comes to mischief. Um, uh, when I was up in New York with my parents in November, I didn't take, I purposely didn't experiment. I was on intermittent paternity leave, so I was wanting to enjoy the time with my wife and, and the baby. I chose not to take my laptop with me. I only took my iPhone. And all the work I did, calls, documents, anything I edited off the iPhone, back to leadership. And they were, they were like a little taken aback. One, they were like, wait, you're working on paternity leave? I said, I'm just doing a little bit of work just to make sure nothing goes awry. But, but they were like, and they were like, wow, the responsiveness is pretty fast. I go, I'm doing everything off the iPhone. And they're like, wait, what? And I'm like, I'm chilling here. The baby's in my arms sleeping. I got a free minute to answer an email or sign a document. And I can do it off the iPhone. And they're like, wait, you can do that? I go, yep. <laughs> yeah. 
Pretty amazing. Um, and looking forward to watching your son develop as a future chief information officer in the federal government, Nagish. Um, my, my dad's hoping doctor, but okay. <laughs> well, my, my dad was a, med- a surgeon, so my dad's kind of hoping, oh, maybe medical doctor. <laughs> fair enough. Um, you mentioned your experience at SBA before you came to BIS, Nagish. I wonder what you learned there in their big cloud transition that you were able to apply, lessons that you were able to apply at BIS, and what you learned in your transition at BIS that maybe you hadn't experienced at SBA or elsewhere in, in your federal career. So I think a couple of key things. One, that, that team was just a dream team. I mean, I, I, there are days where I, I reminisce about that team. Not to say my new team is, is not cool. It's cool. But like, I, I, I sometimes felt like I was Sulu, right? And, and anyone who saw Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, you saw Sulu going to the Excelsior and Kirk maintain his control over the Enterprise. And, you know, it was kind of like, the, you know, the, the, the chiefs went off and started commanding their own ships. And, and I got to say, what was so cool about the SBA Dream Team, again, was the camaraderie, the collaboration, the putting all the best ideas on the table and playing what, what we thought made sense from the data. I think another thing I learned, though, was the art of the sales pitch, the art of the soft sale and the hard sale, and and uh, helping people get to yes. And, and again, I think a critical example I, I will always cite to a conversation I had at SBA where I remember some human resources folks voiced concerns to me about the use of AI and ML. And they were like, you know, if you institute these AI tools you're are you trying to automate my job out there are you trying to automate my job and like therefore I don't have work do I not you know do I no longer have purpose is that what you're trying to do to me and I said no 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 don't look at artificial intelligence that way you look at it as augmented it's helping you make better decisions and and using the data to make a, um, a quicker decision because you know again Federal government services all of America not just some of America we're, we're designed to service all of America so we have a massive impact that we have to provide and not necessarily all the resources. So we're just trying to be more effective and and, and efficient. Nagesh Rao, the CIO at the Bureau of Industry and Safety at the Commerce Department. You can find the link to watch the full length video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. Now, if you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.